Hi everyone, welcome to Such a Good Feeling. My guest today has worked as a remixer as part of Almighty and Seventh Heaven, and it spans artists including Cher, Steps, Kylie, Barry Manilow, Ariana Grande, and Whitney Houston, Britney Spears, Pet Shop Boys, Donna Summer. There's so many of these, but I've just picked some of the most amazing ones. He's also an acclaimed producer and longtime collaborator for the fabulous Jane McDonald, working on albums and TV shows with her. I absolutely love talking to remixers and whenever I have had a production of mine and I know that I'm getting a remix from him, it's always the most exciting thing to know what's going to come back. So please welcome the brilliant John Dixon. Thank you, Steve. That's quite an introduction. <laughs> I'm honoured to be here. Thank you. Yes, I mean, it's kind of... I was having a look this morning and I mean, we'll get into how you got into it, but I mean... There's a lot of, you know, there's not really that many artists that you haven't worked with. We we certainly have. I mean, over the years, there was a point where we were doing two or three a week. Um, we had a sort of purple patch, I think, um, with Almighty Records particularly. Um, we ha we did a mix of Share, Believe, the, the big Share comeback single. And that just took us to a different level. And all of a sudden, we were remixing every pop act in the UK and, and quite a lot in America. And it was a little bit like a factory. You know, we, we literally got the DAT, the digital audio tape, back in those days. Um, and I'd turn up in the studio and I'd spend two or three days round the clock and then do that for, you know, three or four times and, and just do remix after remix after remix. And it was, it was brilliant. It was a real kind of buzz. And you never, you never knew what you are going to get um, until you turned in, up to the studio. And it would be, all right, you're doing... Carly today or you're doing um, Leon Rhymes or whatever it was you know and looking back I don't think you realise at the time just how kind of big it was um, but as you say you, you look back over the years and we did for a certain amount of time we did pretty much every single pop act <laughs> that was around uh, we sort of made a dance version of their single and it was it was exciting it was great you know um, you say um, I think this is interesting people have asked about this before and it's really good to get someone else to describe it but for for, for a world now which is uh, very much everything is stems everything is oh can you send the stems can you download the stems you get this beautifully pristine you know uh, all in time copy of stuff like that just explain to people when you say you got the dat um explain what was on that dat well, normally, of course, this is way before high internet speeds and downloads and, and all that sort of stuff. So we'd literally be sent, often by taxi, by bike, essentially, um, from a London record level, a little tiny digital cassette, um, which is smaller than a VHS cassette. And it would have on, um, it's a stereo recording, essentially. So you'd have like the, the vocals with no effects as one continuous track. You'd then have perhaps some of the instrumentation if you were lucky if you weren't lucky that's all you get you just get an acapella vocal and you get backing vocals and a few other things but you have to basically in real time record those into your system or sample them and then reconstruct the bare bones of the song before you even started looking at a remix or changing the tempo or doing anything else like that um, so that would take a few hours just to get your head around that um, and of course sometimes it wouldn't be labeled and you know blah 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 uh Occasionally, you get sent the big old-fashioned two-inch multi-track, which weighs a ton. is a you know is a big lump of lump of 
oxide, basically. Um, and you have to hire a machine in and transfer the files. So there was a whole rigmarole sometimes just getting the parts into your system. Not like nowadays where you literally download a file, it's in your, on your hard drive and you press play and away you go. There was often a, a process just to get to the starting point. Um, but, you know, that was part of the fun of it, I suppose. It's a bit like um, it used to be. I remember it used to, sometimes it used to be a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. Absolutely. Because sometimes you get things where you'd have, uh, say, the, the the audio that you want to use on the left-hand side and the time code on the right-hand side, so you could potentially link that up. But sometimes it wasn't that at all. It was just like off the multi-track, track one and two, left and right, track three and four, left and right. So as you say, in real time, you have to play that in. And then you have to just juggle it all around until it makes it sound like the record. And the tempo may not have been consistent, of course. If it was off an analog tape machine, yeah. it would drift. So you'd have to chop things up. And this is way before hard disk recording as well. This was with Akai S1000 samplers with a limited sample time. And, and you know, so there's limitations of all the technologies to get it into some sort of form where you can actually start a remix. Um, and often, you know, I mean, there was often, of course, the other thing you say is if it was a, an original song, you wouldn't even know the song, so you'd literally turn up on on a, on a you know on a, on a Monday morning. It's like right, John, remix this. It's like well, I've never heard the song in your life before. So to piece it together, as you say, as a jigsaw puzzle, first of all, you've got to learn the song and listen to that and think, okay, here we are. This is this is this bit. This is that bit. And if you've got just a, a stream of continuous tracks um, labeled, I don't know, keyboard one, synth two, you have to piece it all together. Um, and then decide what you want to do with it, which is the, the fun bit, I suppose. Um, but you yeah. got quite creative. I mean, you, as you know yourself, you you find ways around these things. And uh, as technology got better and better, it became it did become easier, I think. Um, but there was certainly early days. You had banks of samplers, and you ran out of space on one, so you got another one in, and you had to do tricks and bouncing stuff down and messing about. You know, um, I mean, sometimes I remember we did. Um, uh, a remix of Diana Ross, uh, The Boss. And it was completely free time, 24-track live drums, everything's live. And the, the producer, I was, I was engineering at the time. Um, I wasn't remixing myself then, um, but I was the programmer and the engineer. And he wanted it to a click track, to, to, to a rigid tempo. Um, and I literally spent about two days sampling every single track of the multi-track in four-bar phrases, sometimes less. And pieced it then together on a fresh multi-track, um, doing pitch bends to bend the, the timing slightly and edit drums and all sorts of crazy stuff, you know. Um, but that's what you did back then. That was part of the, the deal. And eventually, after two days, the whole song played from beginning to end, live drums, overheads, hi-hat the lot, all the basses, all the guitars, to a rigid click track, you know. And then then he did his thing and, and the way we went sort of thing. But... Um, yeah, it was it was a challenge back then, but we did it, you know. Well, there's there's two things about that. I mean, one, yeah, I think it's really important that people hear that and realize how lucky they are where you can just whack something in Logic and Ableton now and just do smart tempo yes. markers, which would have been two or three days' work. But also I think which is obviously a better thing, but also there's another thing which I've said before, that I think there is creativity and limitation sometimes and if you've only got you know you, you i mean you and i obviously slightly different times but we've trod a similar path and i remember even the old days of brothers in rhythm you know we had two samplers three synths uh a tiny desk and about three effects 
And you just made it work, didn't you? Absolutely, yeah. And you became really good at getting the best out of everything. Um, yeah. We had a, an M1 and a Juno 106. That was it. That's exactly what we had. <laughs> and you learned to program that Juno 106. If, you know, if someone says, can you get that sound? You got the sound somehow. You, know, you pushed yeah. it beyond its limits. Yeah. But it was a really good, really good learning curve, wasn't it? That's exactly. So such a good feeling was made on an M1 and a Juno 106. That's exactly it. There we are. <laughs> and, and then, but it was then what you did with them. It was like, you know, whether you could gate. I think those two things and a 16 track and then a couple of Akai's. Yeah. But it made you really select your sounds carefully, I think. And just, and it made you have to, if you only were doing stuff, to, obviously back then we were still doing stuff to tape, but it made you really, you had to, commit to things you had to just say well that's the sound it's going to have a gate on it it's going to have a delay on it. it's going to have there it is it's done and then we have to now move on to another bank because we can't have you know the juno can only wait one noise at a time exactly yeah yeah <laughs> but as you say that that did you know you you made it work and you you got really creative i think um and and then as things got on and also you learn how to get the best out of these things. You learn about analog synthesis, literally from the ground up, how it all works, you know. Um, where now you can just layer stuff up and you can get sample libraries, you can load up Nexus and everything sounds massive and brilliant and loads of effects on it. Back then it didn't, you know, you had to really work hard to get the best out of it. I mean, we'd, we'd spend, you know, two hours on one sound just tweaking it to try and get it where mm. we wanted it to be. Um, didn't always get there, but we'd give it a go, you know. Um, yeah. Where now you just scroll through a, a series of samples or, or presets and you go, yeah, that'll do, um, and then move on. <laughs> and then if you get chance, you might refine it later on. But it, it, it's, I don't know, it's, it's very different now, isn't it? Um, you have so many more options where then the limitations, as you say, kind of made you more creative, I think, in, in a strange way. Yeah, I think so. And obviously it was like sample culture as well. But yes. I mean, I, I just don't, it's funny when I see, I mean, there's some amazing sample packs around and obviously people use them, but I have a constant belief that um, I don't believe that anybody, if they get a brand new sample pack and it's from a producer they really love and there's 137 kick drums, I don't believe anyone gets beyond number 10. No, no. <laughs> Especially if number one to nine are good. <laughs> yeah. And actually, why wouldn't you put your best one at number one? And Well, you know, yes. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, listen, every everyone's different, and and there's, you know. But I, I agree with you. I know it's what we grew up with, and it's what we know. And we've both obviously adapted to technology and love what we can do now. But, but um, yeah, I think I mean it would be frightening and scary to think about. I mean, and also the other thing with us is that, I mean, from our point of view, because we were lucky enough actually in the end to sort of be in bigger studios. If we needed something, we'd just kind of get someone in to play it. You know, the idea of being able to have a, a realistic sample library for strings or something was way beyond our reach then. So, um, but the, the the intrinsic thing that you have um, as a producer and a remixer is a musicality and an understanding of, of songs and arrangement um, and obviously a, 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 an ability to play as well. So um, where did that come from? Where did that, where did that start when you were growing up? Well, I, I, I basically... Um had piano lessons as a kid so you know like lots of kids did and obviously still do um i was never fantastic at all and i didn't practice very much um but i scrambled through to grade six i think on the piano no sorry grade five on the piano um i was also press ganged which is i think possibly the most interesting into being in an orchestra um playing the bassoon um 
because I had basic piano theory because I, I, I played I played the piano, so I had basic music theory. Sorry, um, I was press ganged into playing the bassoon, which is a really horrible instrument to play if you're a kid because it weighs a ton and it's really hard to physically blow down the thing. Um, but I got to grade six in that, and we played in quite a lot of sort of local orchestras and things like that. And I wasn't interested in, in production at the time, but I absorbed the orchestration, I suppose, and being in an orchestra and being part of an ensemble and learning the different instruments. Um, so when I did get into music production and kind of, you know, listening to pop music and hearing things on the radio and on TV and on top of the pops back then, I could think, okay, that's the violin, that does that, I know what that does, you know, and then I, I could arrange things and, and just have a, a broad understanding of how music's put together. Um, but alongside that, I was... I was an 80s kid, so I listened to Top of the Pops, and I listened to all the synth bands, and there was something about the synthesizer for me that was just magical. You know, th these are sounds that were out of the world, out of this world, um, and I was just fascinated in, in how everything was put together. I didn't know at the time how it was done, um, but my music teacher was way ahead of his time, a school music teacher, and he actually bought things like a Jupiter 8 um, from the school budget. <laughs> Rather than a violin or a French horn, he he bought he bought um, a drum machine, a Yamaha RX five, I think it was, um, and a DW eight thousand, the Korg synth, and he let me use these things. You know, they were they were in the classroom. These are now legendary synths. You know, the Jupiter eight thousand is ten grand plus. Um, I didn't know what it was. I had lots of knobs on it. It made lots of weird sounds, and I thought it was great. You know. Um, so he got me into the sort of synthesizer element of that. Um, so I had this whole thing of being in an orchestra, which is kind of square and boring, but I learned a lot from, you know, just doing that process and, of course, reading music and all that sort of side of it. Um, and a little bit of piano playing, um, but but also access to synths, you know, uh, and that was that was when I really started getting interested in recording and making music in a very sort of basic crude way you know um so i i have um i wonder what your one of, of these is i have an epiphany moment which is um with with synths and electronic music which is which i've spoken about before but it, it's it's me on a school bus at 11 years old and they it was a like a school old rackety school bus with speakers in the ceiling and I was going to school and it was in the days when they used to do, this is so old, but the days they used to do the chart rundown in the morning. So you'd, you'd get it on your way to school. And it was the first time I, I heard um, anything from the Human League from Dare. And I, was, I can remember to this day as an 11-year-old kid going, I don't know what that is, but that's the most incredible thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And I... I must know how they did it. Um, I wonder what your equivalent was as a awakening to that. There's probably a few, but I, I think I was, I was probably more like, I was probably quite, I don't know, 15, 16 perhaps. Um, it was Top of the Pops. Um, I might have my year slightly out here, but I think it was um, Pet Shop Boys. It's uh, either Rent or It's a Sin, one of those ones. And he had a Fairlight on stage um, with a green screen. Um, the big white keyboard. Yes. Um, obviously, it was all miming. It wasn't doing it, but it, obviously that's how they made the record. And I was thinking, what the hell is that telly doing on telly? What, what, what is it? What's he got there? What's going on? You know. Um, and it sounded amazing, of course. I mean, their productions in, in that period were just 
epic and there were quite orchestral, the strings and, and all sorts going on. Um, but it, it, like you say, it wasn't like anything else out there at the time. Um, and for me, that was, that was like, I want you to know what's going on. I want to know what, what that box is. So I started reading Sound on Sound magazine and all those sorts of things and, and learning. Um, and, you know, Ultravox with the BBC Micro sequencer and Vince Clark, of course, was a big, massive influence in terms of synthesis and, and, and how things were put together and sequencing and all that side of it. So, so yeah, Top of the Pops for me, I think. Um, Pet Shop Boys, um, some other 80s things. Um, Howard Jones, I was a big fan of Howard Jones. Um with his sort of synthesis stuff. Thomas Dolby, you know, I mean, kind of really, really out there, amazing productions um, and, and musicality as well, of course. Um, so yeah, Top of the Pops was my reference point. And uh, synths, basically seeing synths and thinking, what the hell is that? You know, um, I want one, basically. <laughs> and, uh, and, and and going down that route. But, but going back to my music teacher, he had... Um, a Yamaha CX-5 computer, which was basically a poor person's Fairlight. Um, I mean, it was crap by today's standards. Um, but you could actually program eight-part polyphony, eight, sorry, eight monophonic lines on this machine, like a Fairlight, essentially, uh, in step time. Um, so you could, you could compose an eight-part piece with a little FM synthesis sort of chip inside it. And... Uh, and, and I'd spend days doing that, you know. Um, and again, going back to the limitations, you had to play it from bar one. You couldn't play it from bar six or bar 20. So as the piece went on, as you got towards the end, to hear it, you had to listen to the whole thing. <laughs> and if it was a mistake, you had to go back. Uh, so, you know, it would it would grind to a halt because every time you'd, you'd, you'd do something more, um, you'd have to go right back to the beginning to hear it again. Um, <laughs> but it was interesting. And it was literally music notation on the screen, uh, you know, quavers, semi-quavers, crotchets, type, typing in one note at a time, um, which I thought was like a fairlight, you know. <laughs> So I was I was yeah. doing that sort of stuff um, when I must have been you know secondary school sixteen fifteen sixteen that sort of age, um, so yeah, lots of fun and games doing that sort of stuff, <laughs> not really knowing what I was doing but learn learning you know and learning yeah so was there a part is there a part of um, at you at that point where you thought that that could be somehow turned into a career as a musician or a producer or an engineer and also were you were you taught things like that were you taught in the school or wherever you were was there an el- i mean an element of studio was there something in there or was there a place you could go to learn that stuff no this this was too early i mean nowadays you know schools have studios there wasn't nothing like that at all um i started to um there was a local music collective and you could hire a four-track porter studio for like five quid or something for a week um so i, I hired this little tascam porter one i think it was or, or some sort of early incarnation of it and and started just self self-teaching you know bouncing tracks and, and and doing that sort of stuff all from reading magazines and just picking stuff up nobody sat down and said this is what you got to do i just tried it and if I blew the machine up, I blew the machine up. If it worked, it worked, you know. Um, but I, I would just make a racket. I would. We had a piano at home. I'd record a piano on one track, then another piano on another track, and hit something as a drum and all that sort of stuff. Um, 
and a few mates I think a friend played the guitar and you know we just we just had a little band and, and messed about and tried to make some sort of noise really um, I think we tried to record a, a record in inverted commas which probably never got finished um, but I, I started to get I started seriously thinking about being an engineer and I was into the technical side of it and I was also getting into computers as well um, I mean this was early early computers, BBC Micro, ZX Spectrums, all that sort of stuff, before the Atari came out. Um, so I was getting into basic sequencing, and I was just fascinated. Um, and I wanted to, I didn't want to go to university because there wasn't a university course that did anything like that. So I, I went to a technical college and did a, a it was called Audio Video HND, which is very boring and very mathematical electronics based. But they had a studio in the basement, a 16-track studio, um, a one-inch tape machine and a Soundcraft 2400 desk, I think it was. And I spent every second I could in that studio. Um, it was very basic, um, literally a desk, a tape machine, and I think one effects unit, possibly a two-track Revox machine for you know bouncing down. Um, and I did some recording there and, uh, and learned a few bits and pieces, you know, um, we did think we did all sorts, we did like a folk group, we did an indie rock band, did some pop stuff with the drum machine, um, but all the time learning, absorbing and just, you know, I think when you're young, anything that catches your eye, you want to know how it works and what it does and how you, how do you plug it in? Then you see someone using it and you go, oh, right, that's how it is. And you learn really quickly, I think, when you're young. You're like a sponge. You soak everything up. And, uh, you know, you, I just loved being in the studio. I just felt at home. It was There was a certain atmosphere in a studio. As you know yourself, it, it's warm, inviting. The, the, it sounds different because of all the acoustic treatment in the studio. Um, and I just loved being in there, you know. So that was that. I felt comfortable there, and I yeah. just wanted to learn. And you get to play. I think that's the thing. It's again, it's such a strange thing hearing these things because again, one of my first years was pretty much exactly the same. Revox, Soundcraft, twenty-four, you know, tape machine. It's it's same thing. But but I think again, it is basic. But then you just sort of get your hands on EQ knobs, or you just say, "What does this do? How's that work?" You. I think one of the things that you learn very very quickly, um, which still is. Uh, probably one of the the most important things for people to learn is just general balance you know how to balance something how um where things should sit in a, in a track um but just having the freedom as you say if you love studios that much the freedom to just go in and just play and and learn by mistakes because i'm i'm a huge believer in in you know make all the mistakes when no one's watching because then by the time it comes to the point where it's quite important you'll have kind of got them all out of your system. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think when, you're, when you're, you know, young and in education as well, that, that's, the, that's the time to experiment and, and do things. You're not being paid. This is not a job. Any, this, you're not at the stage where this is your job. You're just doing it because it's fun and you want to do it. And everyone else around you is in a similar situation. So you just, you can do whatever you want. You can turn the tape backwards and do reverse effects. You can spin things in from a, a Revox B77 you know, trying to get it in time and all that sort of business. Um, and you can just enjoy yourself and it's great, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's no, it, happy is, days. it is. So so what's the move from from there into, do you then move into more sort of engineering into other studios or are you getting a, do you get, are you, 
Did you ever get a proper job? I, I, not really. No, I've never. I've never. I'm not, not very good at proper jobs. Um, I I got a work placement following the end of that two year course. Somehow, I don't know how this happened. I got a work placement in Utopia Studios in London, which was a fairly big studio, two room complex, um, owned, I believe, by the Bear City Rollers. I think. <laughs> Um, but obviously they didn't use it was they bought it for tax reasons probably um, and it was a commercial studio um, and I got a six week work placement there um, Brian Ferry had booked the main room for a year to work on an album so that was that was shut <laughs> he was in there you couldn't go in there um, I was in studio two and it was that strange time when you had quite a lot of Japanese bands coming over to record um I think they liked the English sound at the time. Um, so it was SSL desk. Um, I can't remember the tape machine, obviously 24 track tape machine. L- a lot more of effects and a proper studio. This is like, this is grown up stuff now, you know, um, AMSs and lexicons and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and I was just a tape hop. So you make the tea and you get the sandwiches and you do whatever needs to be done. Um, but once the band had finished, I could use the desk and do whatever. Um, so I, some some kind soul gave me a two inch tape, tape, a reel of tape, and just said play with this. And I just sort of remixed on the desk whatever was there. I just play the track and just put those effects and stuff on and trigger things and you know mess about and learn and and learn my way around the SSL desk because you look at it and it's like oh my god that's so daunting you know. Um, but once you figure it out, it's not that complex really. Um, so again, I'd just be learning. Um, all the time and and blagging my way to do as many things as I could, you know. Um, and somebody came in to do a session and they brought um, an Atari with them with C-Lab on it and they were doing keyboard overdubs. And and again, it was that Pet Shop Boys moment of thinking, what's that? In the, what's, what's he doing over there with that thing? You know, and I looked at it and it was just a whole list of numbers. It was like, what is, what's going on here, you know? Um, so, so obviously, I I, I watched and, and learned, and uh, I thought that's interesting, you know. And he was sequencing. He was, you know, this as you know, this was a, a shift up in technology now, um, and you could yeah. essentially make a whole track on an Atari with a few MIDI bits and pieces. Um, so I thought, yeah, that looks good. Um, <laughs> so I got my head around that, um, and I must have made some sort of an impression because there was a studio next door to the studio I was working in and they were looking for a house engineer and um, for some reason I managed to get the job. So I became an in-house engineer. Um, proper, This is a proper job and I'm getting paid and getting money to do what I want to do here. So this is brilliant, you know. Um, and it was um, a DDA desk, nice, nice desk actually, um, with an Atari 24 track and an S1000, an Akai S1000, and an Atari, and C-Lab, and the M1, and the Juno 106, and the Lexicon 480, and the AMSs, and it was like, this is heaven, you know, this is brilliant. And massive Crested speakers, um, custom designed by Roger Crested. So this was, this was heaven, this was brilliant, you know. Um, so I, I worked there for years, I worked there, uh, learned, learned everything I could learn, you know. Um, the S1000 was the hope of the studio then because it, it was dance music was the thing. This would be early 90s, I guess. House music, acid stuff, music, you know, rave and all that sort of thing. Um, and if you could operate an S1000 well, 
you were in <laughs> because nobody else could do it basically all these producers DJ guys would come in who were great guys and could mix tracks and stuff but could they use an S1000 now so if you could get your head around the S1000 and be really quick at it um, you, you'd get the job basically so I, I became full time engineer uh, programmer there for, for quite a few years and um, we obviously the studio is rented out to various clients so I, I get to know different producers and, and the way of working and putting dance records together and uh, that was great you know um, long long hours I mean you know 14 hour 16 hour days easily uh, for, for many many days in a row uh, sometimes weeks and weeks in a row um, but that was that was my first proper studio job uh, and it just went from there really Amazing. Yeah. So, again, so many similarities, T-Boy, to working with dance producers, to all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And is that the studio where you first met Andy, or is that...? Uh, not directly. Um, so, from that studio, um, I became freelance, essentially. Um, th th there was a, obviously a raft of producers would come and go and hire the studio, um, and a couple of them wanted to record there, but not necessarily mix there because it wasn't necessarily, perhaps wasn't the best mix studio. Um, this is in the days when you'd use multiple studios sometimes. Um, doesn't happen so much now. Um, so I did an arrangement with the studio and I sort of became self-employed even though I was based still there. Um, so I was freelance. So I, I dart around various studios in London um, as and when needed, but sometimes go back to the original studio I was working in, um, which was good fun, you know. Um, but the one of the clients from the studio I was working at used me a few times um, and used me to do some programming at Roundhouse Studios, I think it was, yeah. uh, in Camden, sadly long gone. And um, they were looking for a programmer uh, like a full-time, this is on Mighty Records, um, on Martin Norris and Mighty Records. Um, they were looking for someone to sort of, actually it wasn't full-time, sorry, they were looking for someone to come in and do a bit of programming here and there on an ad hoc basis um, because they, they were doing quite well and they couldn't, you know, meet up with their demand of production work. Um, so I did a few bits and pieces, um, again, S1000 sort of stuff with, um, I think it was, I think it was probably might have been Notator then. I, might, I can't remember what software we were using, but we did. I did some work for him, and he seemed to like it. And um, he said, "Look, we we're opening a little studio in Archway off the Holloway Road. Would you help set it up and come and work there?" Um, so I, I did it part time for a bit, and then the workload just got so much. He said, "Look, just can you do full time?" So I ended up working there as I suppose you'd call it in-house producer really I'm not quite sure what the label is it was engineering programming but playing the keyboards as well which is a step up because before I was working with other producers and other keyboard players and session players this was just me basically making all the music um, good or bad sometimes quite bad um, but I was giving it a go you know and um, this then um, did that for a few years and then this led up to the uh, the Share remix, which was, the, as I mentioned before, was the game changer. Um, so we, for some reason, um, the label was doing quite well, got a bit of a reputation, and we we got asked to remix Believe by Share, which was obviously a massive record at the time. Um, and the, the funny story of that is, um, I would usually get two days on a mix, 
Um, so and I'd, I'd finish about three o'clock in the morning. That was my standard time of finishing work. And I would drop a dat off, again, a little digital dat, um, around the corner where Martin Norris, the, the owner of the business, lived. And he'd leave his window just ajar, a tiny bit, so I could slip the dat in so it wouldn't get wet. And then he'd listen to it in the morning, and I'd come in the studio about midday, and, um, you know, he'd go, yeah, that's good, or I don't like that, or whatever. Um, and uh, I'd finish. I was struck. I couldn't think, I couldn't get a riff. I couldn't, there was something about the song, I just couldn't get it right somehow. So I was struggling with it. So I, I wrote on the thing, super rough mix, I'll finish it tomorrow, um, you know, whatever. Um, came back the next day, and I said, what did you think of it? It needs a lot of work. It's, a, it's, it's just a rough mix, obviously. And uh, it says, oh, we sent it off to the label. They love it. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the big remix that changed sort of the history of that label was actually a rough mix that I needed another day on it, really, to be honest with you. And I was struggling and, and I thought, you know, I, I was really tired. It was three or four o'clock in the morning. Um, but that was it. It was gone. <laughs> And I was like, no, you, no, 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 it's not finished. It's nowhere near finished. It's super rough. Da, da, da. Um, but they said, oh, they absolutely love it. It sounds great. You know, next, we're doing this next. <laughs> like, give me another dap of something else. Um, but that that changed the history of the label, basically. Um, for some reason, it seemed to resonate. I think it was the only dance mix of the song, to be honest with you. So I think they had to play that one or, or not bother. And because it was such a big um, record, they obviously play the dance mix in the clubs um, and then from there we literally got inundated and we were doing dance mix after dance mix after dance mix as well as our own in-house productions um, and for I would say I don't know three four years maybe we just had a purple patch of doing every pop act you know certainly in England and then quite a lot in the, in the States as well um, and that was amazing, you know. But it, I was never happy with that mix, though, because I, when I hear it, I think, oh, it's a rough mix. It's just one of those things, you know. But that's sometimes how these things pan out. Hey, listen, it happens to every... I mean, there's a lovely David Foster story where he says that, you know, when he finished I'll Always Love You, Clive Davis asked him to start it with an acapella. So he just, he did it and just like mocked it up and said, well, this is what it would sound like. Right. Uh, and that's the record. Right. Yes. Yes. But that, yeah, absolutely. But this it, is the it, thing. It can happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, from that day on, I've always uh, vowed not to send people rough mixes because um, yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things, a lesson learned, I suppose. Um, yeah. Yeah. De yeah. You just never know who might use it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. But as you say, it worked out really well. It worked out really what well. Was, <laughs> I mean, you obviously Almighty had a, a style and a, and a sound, yeah. but it was very much um, hedged in the clubs. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, obviously with its, you know, a, a home within kind of gay clubs and GAY yeah, especially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, are you, because it was interesting with, with, with David and I, when we were working together, we, we had a thing where I would, I mean, I come from a bit of a DJ background anyway, so I would occasionally go to the kind of, to go to a club but generally I would live in the studio he would do the club and then he would come back and say right we need to do something like this was that similar with you or were you going out and seeing what your the remixes were doing on the floor no I I, I can count on the fingers of one hand how many times I've been to a nightclub um, I, yeah. I, you know I'm just not a club goer I, I don't dance I, I don't particularly this might sound strange I don't particularly 
gravitate towards dance music, um, <laughs> given that I've made thousands of dance records. Um, yes. But I, I was, you know, I was fed, um, you know, 12-inch import records from from Andy Wetson. We'll talk about him in a minute. And um, and, the, and the Almighty Records guy, Martin Norris. Um, so y- you learn them, you know, you, you, you learn the format and you learn how these things work. And I'm not sure you need to necessarily go to a club to understand that, how dance music works. Um, once you once you've got your head around it and and you sort of understand the genre, um, I think you you know it, it's it's like anything else. You can pick it up and and learn it. Um, but no, I, I'm not a club goer at all, um, which a lot of people find bizarre because um, you know all these people are off off their heads dancing to the music I've made, and I'm like you know watch, having a cup of hot chocolate watching you know telly. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or we're in bed at four o'clock in the morning when they're sort of raving to all this stuff, um, yeah. but that's fine. I, I'm, I quite like that. I quite like that juxtaposition of you know a person who isn't in the club music making club music. I find that quite amusing. <laughs> no, I like. I mean, I like it. I'm you know I'm I'm a little similar, and I think actually intrinsically it's about arrangement. And once you kind of understand, and especially when you're getting to the, you know, the longer versions or the kind of the 12 inch versions, whatever you, you, you know, it's all about, I, I simplify it so much by saying, you know, it's, it's basically all about the kick drum, taking it away and bringing it back. Yes. yes. You know, when it's gone, they miss it. And when it comes back, they love it. And it's just how much you can do that. If and you how can much keep that excitement is. going with, with that formula for seven minutes, then, then you've won. Well, yeah. And, and actually there's only, you know, Nearly everything, well, not absolutely everything, but most of what you did would be a, of a certain tempo with a 4-4 kick. Absolutely, so yes. it's yes. really just what you surround that with. And actually, within Dance Me, there's only about, I know this sounds a bit reductive, but there's probably only about eight or nine bass lines that sort of you can kind of deviate between. I mean, there was, there was a period, I think, for, for probably two or three years we just did offbeat bass lines that was all yeah. we did that that was yeah. the, that was the standard thing you didn't even question this it wasn't like what bass line should we do you just do an offbeat bass line you know and it's really easy and quick to do um and it's effective and when that sort of trance period pop trance period was happening um you know robert Miles' children and uh, there's loads of them at the time um that was the genre, and that, that that was what you did. And if you did anything different, people would like look at you, thinking, "What's that?" You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that that's fine. That's good. You know, stick to the formula. Stick it's to the scary. formula. It's scary. I chat when I chatted to Ian Masterson um, uh, about as we were we were reminiscing on the fact of at the time it didn't really seem like it, but good God, those records were fast, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Some of them were. I mean, we went to one four, one four six, one four eight. Occasionally, now you listen back, you think, "Blimey, that's that's crazy fast," you know. Um, yeah, I mean, we uh, there was a point where everything was one three four, one three five, and we were thinking, "Oh, is it?" You know, I think it was around that time. I think Paul Van Dyke started making records about one forty, and then it was just like, "This feel is this too like?" <laughs> but it's, isn't know. it funny how you get you do get used to it and you get acclimatized? Um, yeah, in in a day, but also in a week or a month or a year, so that you're you're, you're your reference points become faster um so you know it's one of those things well i'm happy now that things are well things are more varied now i think in dance music um but they're certainly on the slower side compared to the the 130 plus territory you know are there some records some disco stuff still works at 134 i think 136 oh yeah i I mean there's and there's records from the back in the day you know sort of disco inferno some of those that 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 need to be that the interesting thing now is of course is that 
you know, there's this fantastic TikTok phenomenon of speeding lots of songs up. Yes, yes. So, so they'll fast, they'll go fast anyway, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but that's more to do with attention span. Yes. <laughs> I think, uh, <laughs> you know, that when we were doing it, I suppose it was more to do with energy and uh, and where that energy was coming from. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so you, you mentioned Andy there. So yes. um, what's, what's, how so, did you, uh, how did you Andy get Wetsam, together? Andy uh, Wetsam, hi Andy, if you listen to this. <laughs> um, hi Andy. Hi Andy. Uh, he worked at Almighty Records um, in the sales side, basically. He did the, the, the mail order stuff and all the record label smoozing and blah 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 and uh but we we worked in a essentially an open office so i'd see him every day and we became you know good friends um i left almighty i i I was getting burnt out i've been there i think seven eight nine years perhaps something like that um we'd we'd i think we'd seen the peak of the remix kind of career if you like um and I, I wanted to get more into production, and, and I was saying to the the owner, you know, we've had such a good success with um, uh, the, the the remix stuff, and we were starting to do bits of production, little bits here and there. We did a track with Louise, who obviously I know you know. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, but it was it was me cutting my teeth, and you know, some things are best left not heard um, in terms of production. Um, but he 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 wasn't he wasn't on the same page um and i was i i was getting to a point where i couldn't do 15 hour days six days a week anymore you know um it I was just i i needed i needed to move on and do something different so so i, I left basically and um which is when i met, met um adam clough of course uh who managed myself and another chap i used to work with um for a little bit um but anyway andy so almighty records kind of stumbled around a little bit and I think Andy left about a year later maybe something like that roughly and said to me look why don't we do stuff together um and and I'll sort of manage I'll manage it in terms of the business side and getting work and and you know contacts and all that and you you do the music stuff because that's what you do um so we did um so we worked together and um I think I've probably missed out a few steps because there was a few a few false starts along the way with different people and things. But essentially, Seventh Heaven was born, which is the remix dancey side of of what I do, um, and probably what most people know me for now, I guess. Um, and I think it's been going fifteen years, something like that, um, rough, roughly. Um, you know, peaks and troughs, and, and fashion comes and goes, and all the rest of it. But we've, I think, we've done quite well. We've done lots of remixes. Um, we're getting more into production. I, um, sometimes it's Seventh Heaven, sometimes it's just me. It, it depends I, I, on, on various different things. I, I guess if, if it's four on the floor club dance music, it's Seventh Heaven. If it's more pop stuff, it tends to be under my own name. Um, but there's no hard and fast rule. But Andy is essentially my business manager. And um, we don't, he lives miles away. It's all done on Zoom and phone calls and emails. Um, but yeah, he's a, uh, he is part of Seventh Heaven, um, a very big part, and and we work well together. You know, um, we know each, we've known each other for twenty odd years plus, must be twenty five years. So we know we know how we tick, and uh, that's that's a little team that works well. Yeah, amazing. So, what's the very first Seventh Heaven remix? He put this on Facebook. I think I can't remember. Um, he did put it up a few weeks ago because it was an anniversary. I think um, oh, okay. it, it was some dance record. I can't remember. Right. If I'm really honest, um, it wasn't any anyone big. Um, we we went back to our kind of house roots, I suppose, to start with. I did quite a lot of fairly credible sort of housey club stuff. 
um, which we, we, you know, which I really enjoyed. Um, but then we've gone, we've gone, you know, mainstream pop and disco and all sorts of things along the way, as you do. Um, which I like. I, I like the variety. I, I don't like to stay in one genre too much. I think that that's why I left Almighty because it, it was starting to feel I was making the same remix again and again and again and again. And after a while, you need something fresh, I think. Yeah. I think the other reason that, um, apart from the quality of what you're doing, the other reason that um, it was that Seventh Heaven are still so popular is that you are able to do that clever little thing where you deliver the mix for the clubs that is also able to be cut down for the radio. Yeah, I mean, that that's that's something... It's always nice, of course, when a remix is taken on as the main radio edit or an alternative radio edit. Um, I, I, I think it's flattering that, um, you know, that they like it that much. Um, it's not always easy to do. I think sometimes you can compromise both ends of it. I think trying to make a club record into a radio edit is difficult sometimes, but sometimes it works really well. Um, and I think radio now play a lot more dance music than they used to. You know, like even Radio 2 will play like a four on the floor dance thing now. Um, so it, it's a broader market, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I always try and get my, my head around what the label want. Is it, do they really want a club mix, a proper club mix, or do they want a club mix that works on the radio. I think the two different things and getting that balance right is sometimes tricky, but you know, it, it's, it's a nice thing to, to do and hear a, a club record or a dance mix, I suppose on, on the radio. Um, so yeah, I, I, what, what with seven heaven, which I, I couldn't do with almighty. I can, I can be more me. If I want to spend two days doing a string arrangement, then I'll do it. You know, am I, I it's a little bit of a luxury and it doesn't always financially make sense. Um, but I will try and do stuff that pleases me rather than a third party. You know, obviously the label are a massive part of that or the artist, but, um, I guess I've got more quality control and I can just say, mm, I want to spend another day on this and, and get it right. You know, rather than just churn it out and, and kind of treat it as a job. It's more of a, more of a passion, I suppose, you know, yeah, and I think musically as well, you've got, you know, you are sort of multi-instrumentalist to the point of uh, you can, you know, you can actually play stuff, you can program stuff, you can do stuff. And, you know, you probably got, um, as I do, a, a selection of amazing kind of musicians and friends that you can call on for the stuff that you can't do, like singers, string players, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. No, I'm very lucky in that I've, I've got a pool of people. A lot of them I, I met working with on the Jay McDonald projects a few years ago. Um, but I, there's, I, I can't think of a single instrument that isn't, you know, if I need it, I can call someone and they can either come down or record it at their place and, you know, whatever. Um, so, yeah, that, that's brilliant to have. It's, it's, it's a resource that is invaluable. You know, I, I'm 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 not a good musician. I, I can play lots of instruments very badly, um, but anything no, that I, is no, don't use them, but competently <laughs> is what you want to say. No, you don't no, no. Say honestly, I can't. I can't. Um, <laughs> but I enjoy trying. And if it's really, yeah. if there's anything I can't do, I'll just get someone in to do it. And and you know, I know some amazing musicians. And and as you know, they take things to a different level. You know, as soon as you get yeah. someone a really good guitarist, or you know, it it just opens the world up. And um, I really enjoy that. I really enjoy collaborating and working with amazing musicians and it's just it just takes things to a different level. It's fantastic. Do you remember um 
I'm just trying to think of if you remember an, an instance of, because I have a few of these, of a time where, you know, the DAT's coming in, oh, I'll do another remix, do another mm-hmm. remix. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those songs that when you were a teenager, you absolutely admired and loved. Ah, oh, let me think. Ah, uh, yes, actually. Um, this is not long ago. I did um, Communards, Don't Leave Me This Way. Yeah, um, which is, by the way, one of the best things you've ever done. Because, oh, thank you. <laughs> because you kept the spirit yeah. and just changed what was needed to be. Well, the Communards for me were a bit like the Pet Shop Boys. I, um, you know, seeing them on top of the pops and... Um, you know, obviously the, the falsetto was singing and, and it was it was exciting and it was fresh and, and Richard on the piano and, you know, I want to play like that, you know, amazing stuff. Um, and then to be sent um, a digital copy of the multitrack with actually a photograph of the, the box with, with the handwritten notes on it and listening to the, you know, I think there was only about 20 tracks or something. Um yeah. And this, you know, this this was what I listened to on top of the pops, you know, and it was amazing. And it was like, wow, yeah, that was a definite jaw-dropping moment. And and then I thought, hell, what, what am I going to do with this? This is so good as it is, you know. Um, but as you said, um, I think the key was to keep keep most of it as it was really, and leave it alone, and just make it into a into a, a club version or a dance version, um, and try and eke out some creativity or something other than what was already there but um, I mean sometimes as you know when things are so good it's sacrilege to um, sort of destroy that and, and you know trance all over the beauty of it with just some horrible synth sound so <laughs> I think sometimes you know learn to leave well alone I think is, is probably a, a good motto sometimes yeah it's just, it's a nice update basically and yeah. a respectful update Um what is your? I mean, I get asked this, and I never know how to answer it. So I'm gonna let, I'm gonna lay it on you to see if you could do a better job than I ever have. Something comes in, a remix comes in. What's your starting point? Um, if if I know the song, if it's a cover, you know, if I know yeah. the song, then I just go away and think about it. Um, if it's an original, I always need to listen three, four, five times, get my head around it. Um, in terms of technically starting it, it's usually just getting I mean I'm kind of old school I just start really basic and just get a very simple drum rhythm going and just get a feel for the tempo and the bass line really I suppose um, I mean the only thing I would say I mean 80% of the time it's it's second nature and quite obvious what needs to happen I think um, sometimes you get a song and you get a brief and you're thinking, oh, this is difficult. This isn't going to fit. The tempo's way out or it's in a very major key and they want a dark mix or, you know, you think you're going to have a fight on your hands and a, and a, and a struggle. Um, and that's when you've got to do some head scratching. And then I'll just try anything <laughs> just to get something going, you know. Um, but norm- normally it's very simple drums, usually four on the floor, obviously, because it's club music. Um usually the bass line, and then a simple piano. Um, and then I'll I'll just go from there. If I need to mock up parts or copy parts from something, like, you know, if it's, if it's a cover of something, for instance, I'll do that and get that out of the way because then I can, you know, park that and then do the creative stuff. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's the way it works. It's not very sort of glamorous or exciting, but it's just 
starting with a very simple drum rhythm and, and going from there. Um, what I do like to do, um, if when I get to a certain point and the track's kind of, you know, it's got some meat on the bone and it's got bass and it's got drums, I like to give myself half a day of just, I bounce it down as a stereo file and I think I'll just do overdubs and do literally anything, mad stuff, just really creative, you know, this, I'm not worrying about 25 tracks, I've just got a stereo mix. I can change the tempo, I can do anything I want to do and just be creative. And and 10% of what I do might end up on the actual finished record, but it just gives you that freedom to be, think outside the box and just try any old stuff, you know. Um, even chop up, chop up the rough mix and just, you know, filter it or or reverse it or just be be free to do anything I want to do you know um, and sometimes you get magic little moments or little mistakes or something will happen or you get a funny little loop that you think oh that that's a hook that's good I'll use that you know um, but I give myself that freedom of, of just having a bit of time and a bit of space to just do whatever I think that's great and I think there's another thing which uh, which I imagine I like kind of the way we start things is kind of quite similar but also i'm a big fan of i there's a lot of people that will overthink what you know this i i i tend to chuck a lot of stuff in yeah just to get going and then often the thing that i put in to get me to another place ends up getting ditched yeah yeah of course yeah but actually it's not about oh is this the exact right riff perfect sound it's like yeah put it in put something else in get it sounding kind of up and ha- happening quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. Because then you can then go off to something else and then you'll realise the thing you put in at the beginning that isn't very good, you can just get out. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would go so far as to say that, and you may be the same, but in the first two or three hours, once you've done all the technical stuff and you, when you're actually happening, the yeah. first couple of hours is probably when 80% of what, you know, is kind of there. And then you just refine things and extend them or you might ditch stuff. But there's a there's a sort of two or three hour window where you lay stuff down really quickly because things are quick these days with computers. Um, and because, you know, we've been doing this a while, <laughs> each of us, we know what we're doing to some extent. Um, you can get you can get there pretty quickly. It's It's what happens next, I think, that makes it from a into something special, you know, um, refining and, and kind of eking out little nuggets of stuff yeah. um, that can take the time and the tweaking and the faffing about, you know. Um, but yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's funny, so I've had people sort of say, oh, you know, we'd love to, you know, sort of watch you work and do this sort of thing. And I've just said, it's chaos. Yeah, it's yeah. The first two hours is because you, you know, as you say, for someone like you and, 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 and me, you know, it, there is an idea. It's, it's, for us, it's like, oh, yeah, we know what needs to happen. But actually, a lot of it is just banging stuff in. It's not right. Bit of this, take that out. That's not right. Oh, don't worry about it. We'll sort it out later. But the two or three hour madness is the only way I can describe it because <laughs> there's nobody else in the room. There's no one sat at the back. I mean, it was when I was working with someone else, it was different. But, you know, now there's no one at the back going, oh, are you sure about that? You just put it all in. And then, as you say, 80%, you've got something. And then, and I'm, I'm a completely agree with you. I'm a huge fan of just saying, okay, let's give it. I, I, I you probably do the same. Where I mean, it's hard with deadlines, I suppose, with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I always think it like have a couple of two or three things on the go, and just kind of go, dip into one and then dip out and then dip back in. Cause, yeah, yeah. You know, you'll hear different things, and uh, yeah, it's it, it it's 
there's not really an art to it, but as you say, you're just just making it's stuff. It's kind of a, a chaotic science, isn't it? There's, there's, that's it. That's because a better we, way to We kind of know it. what we're doing, but we're not quite sure in the chaos of it how it's going to how we get there but we, we usually do somehow <laughs> we do and actually if there's a you know if there's a vocal there's usually a vocal in it which is is helpful and there's a song structure that's there of, in the of first course. place yes yes but you but you have i think and this i'm beginning to understand a bit now about you know how this process works with you where you say or oh, you take it away and put it because you know you'll always have nine times out of seven, something around halfway through, two-thirds of the way through, whereas a drop or a build or a filter section or something, which is the thing that makes it kind of a bit more special than just a straight remix. Yeah, I, I guess so. I think, especially if it's going to be a six, seven-minute thing, you need something that isn't in the original record, I think. Um, yeah. It, it could be something really simple or it could be something, you know, quite dramatic. Um Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it, you can't always do it. But I think if you can, I think it, it, it's nice. It, it just gives it a different flavour, I suppose, um, and a different, you know. And it's 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 more creative to do something like that. I think. Um, yeah, I, I think a great example of that is slightest touch for steps, where it you know it had all of the the nods and the references to to Shep's original mix, yes. but it just took it up that extra notch. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. was so brilliantly done, and again, the way that build into you know into the middle, into the high ad lib, and everything—that's just so good. The funny thing was that with that mix is it was such a tight deadline. Um, fortunately, I, I knew the song quite well because I'd, I'd done yeah, it you've before, done it, <laughs> <laughs> I did it twice before. I think. Oh, you did uh, with Denise as well. I did didn't with you? Denise, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know that was years ago, so I couldn't remember it. But I was obviously familiar with the song. Um, but I think I'd, it was basically two days or whatever. Um, yeah. But I knew, it, I knew. I mean, it had to be you know, good, obviously. Um, I can't even remember what's in it. I just did it and it's, and, and mixed it. And um, everyone's saying, oh, you put in this thing. It's like, have I? I don't know what I've done. It's just, it's just there it is, you know. Um, but it obviously, it, it turned out well. Like, it was one of those things that sometimes just things, it doesn't happen that often, but, you know, one out of 10, something clicks and uh, it becomes slightly slightly I don't want to say better than I thought it could be but uh, you know it, it just worked for some reason um, and everyone seemed to like it so. but it wasn't I wasn't spending you know days and days tweaking thinking oh I put in this trans riff because it lifted into the just, you just do it and it, and that's what it ends up being and it's like oh great it works you know um, again limitation though you had limited time exactly you hadn't got time to think or go through 25 hi-hats or think what if I get that bass drum from two years ago will that be better no just do it you know <laughs> and sort it all out later that, that's yeah yeah yeah. well that's that back again back to something I spoke to on my last interview with, with, with Sarah DeCorsi about the thing that I, I genuinely believe that there's a there's something that happens. There's a, a chemical that's released in your brain where you don't have any time, so you just have to go with your gut feeling because you haven't got time to think about four different things. Just go put it in. Okay, that that's got to be it because I haven't got time. Absolutely. I think what you said about over questioning things sometimes it, it can be your own worst enemy when you have no choice and your gut is usually right. I suggest. Um, so yeah, I think deadlines create an urgency and a, and a creativity. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. And I think just that idea of what you naturally do. I mean, obviously there's been a few things that you've done that I've that I've worked on, but I think um your remix of hundred degrees was so perfect because I'd I'd obviously gone in Biff and I'd gone into this disco thing. Yeah. And it just needed it just needed you. It just needed you to do what you do, which was just 
keep the essence of the original, but just kind of make it more club friendly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very musical, that song as well. I think that's one of the things that, that one, well, there's many things, but one of the things that really helps you out is the fact that because of how you, how you grew up and the <clears throat> knowledge you have of musicality, you know, you're not, if there's something that you get that actually is a bit, slightly out there musically well not out there musically but for pop dance is out there musically you can cope with that yeah yeah i mean i'm again it's it's like um you know i'm not the greatest musician and i'm not the greatest orchestrator or arranger but i, I can i can normally wing it basically enough yeah to get by um so yeah I, I i enjoy that side of it actually i enjoy the you know the chord shapes and the, and the modulations and all that sort of stuff and i it's something that i think i'm I want to say getting better at it, but I'm I'm getting more fluent at it. Um, so yeah, it's nice. I like that. I like musicality. You know. Yeah. Plus, you're mixing everything as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I, that's where I started. I suppose is from the engineering side was the mix mixing side of it, the technical stuff, um, yeah. and the music stuff's kind of crept up behind me, and sort of met me in the middle somewhere. Um, but I, I like that um, combination. I think that's you know. Um, I'd, I mean, don't get me wrong. If there's a budget, I'd love to say to someone, "Look, he's two grand. Go and mix this in a brilliant studio." Um, but as you know, the realities of the music industry now, chances are you're going to have to mix it yourself. Plus, it's mixing itself as you as you produce it. Yeah, you, I, 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 I think everyone does to some extent because you have to, but otherwise it can just sound a mess. Um, yeah. But I do like to I do like to try and draw a line. Um, you're probably the same it's like when do you stop fiddling with the production and the arrangement and yeah. when do you think actually I need to make this into a record now and mix the thing yeah. um, and, and it's sometimes difficult to, to make a clear distinction um, and inevitably during either one of the processes you might go back and, and think actually that needs changing on the production um, because of the way it's been mixed or something so there's, there's bound to be a bit of interplay but I, I do like to spend a bit of time just with my mixing hat on um, you know, yeah. big speakers, make sure the bottom end's right or whatever. Um, and just just thinking, no, this is, forget the production now, it is what it is. Let's just try and make the mix sound as good as it can be. Um, so yeah, you, you, you are flipping hats sometimes, you know, <laughs> caps, uh, different different roles. Um, but again, I, I quite like that. I like the variety, you know, I, I like the, the different, because they are very different roles, as you know. Um, yeah, and you need to be in different headspaces for them, I think, for sure. And that doesn't mean to say when you're mixing it, you know, you've probably, you've, I'm sure we've both done it, where you're mixing it and all of a sudden you go, oh, hang on, there's a, actually it needs that riff or it needs that extra thing. Or it's or it's what I call, there's, there's stuff when I'm mixing that I kind of call parsley, which is stuff only I know about. <laughs> yes. There's, <laughs> there's this sprinkles and parsley of things. Like people sometimes pick up on it. I did a, a project. Fairy dust that you Fairy dust, called, yeah, yeah. 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 I, yeah. I, I did a project a couple of years ago with Kylie called Infinite Disco, where it was like a, um, a, a continuous concert. Yeah. And there's this whole thing was supposed to be in this magical world. And there's so many tiny little things all of it. And it was really weird. It came out on... I think it was on CD and on vinyl and stuff. And people were coming back and say, like, oh my God, we just listened to it on headphones and we heard this and it was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same. I, I, I can get bogged down in fairy dust or, or sprinkles or whatever you want to call it. But yeah. that's, to me, I love all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it can be so subtle, can't it? And just so... It can. You know, uh, and even I can't hear it sometimes. And I put it there, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I can't hear that little mark tree or that little, that little thing. But it does sometimes, you know... It does, and it makes people feel a certain way as well, but they don't know why. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes I hear stuff on the radio, 
and you know that the compression of the radio and all yeah, that sort yeah. of stuff it brings things out and you think you know you listen to it in the studio and you can barely hear it on the radio it's like wow that really pops out so yeah. <laughs> so I think it's okay to have things in a mix that you can't actually hear but they're, yeah. do, they're doing stuff you know um, yeah but but those in, like Trevor used to call, Trevor Horn used to call them whiz bangs yes and they're just you know little moment all of a sudden there's one thing in a record that just goes whoosh, and that's it and it never happens again. We haven't mentioned Trevor Horn, but he was a massive influence on me. Everything he touches, obviously, is genius. Um, so going going back to the early stuff, Trevor Horn was a huge influence on me, and the, and Steve Lipson, his programming skills, and you know some of our reference points. Trevor Horn, obviously, he's in a, he's a god to me. He's on a different planet, um, but just amazing stuff that he did. You know. Um, yeah. astonishing predictions it's, and again about the, you know in the time of limitation and yes. sounds and stuff so, absolutely so, so so from a production point of view I mean you've done lots of production but we have to talk about Jane now yeah. the thing about Jane is like in this country Jane McDonald is known as a TV presenter or the girl that was on the cruise and the TV presenter and some a bit recently I suppose with the TV show but I don't think she gets enough credit for being just the most incredible singer. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about a woman that sold out Carnegie Hall. Yeah. You know, this is in the world where, you know, you've got these divas, these incredible incredible people, just, you know, the richness and the tonality of her voice is absolutely extraordinary. So um, how did you meet? Well, I, I I did a remix for one of her songs. I mean, this is, I can't remember what the song was now. This was years and years ago. Um, and... I think the tempo was something like 80 BPM or something. So there was no there was no way we could have stretched the vocal. I say we, me, could have stretched the vocal. Um, so she said, look, I'll, I'll come down to you and re-record the vocal. Um, it's like, fine, okay. Um, so, so that's how we met. So she came down and re-sung the song and obviously did the remix and, and that was that. And then I did a few more bits for her, all, all dance, all four on the floor stuff, which, you know, isn't her genre really. Um, and then she said, John, do you do other stuff that isn't dance? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh, well, would you do some stuff for me? It's like, yeah, okay. Um, so I'm trying to think what it was. It might have been a James Bond mentally. It was something for one of the tours, one of the, one of the, one of the shows. Um, it might have been a thing from, from Cats. I, I can't remember. Um, but, you know, I, I basically did the production for that. Um, and she came over again to to do the vocals, and you know we got on really well, and um, we just started working more and more together. And she asked me to do her album, um, which I was, you know, having a cup of tea around the kitchen table. She said, "John, do you want to do my next album?" <laughs> and I was like, "Seriously?" It's like me. It's like yeah. It's like bloody yeah, of course I would. Yeah. So we did a whole album, um, and it was glorious. You know, um, it was so different to the dance stuff. Um, Obviously, the tempos were all over the place. It was quite, uh, you know, real horns, real guitars, um, synth strings. Um, but it was it was a breath of fresh air, you know. And and Jane, as you as you said, is just an amazing singer, and seemingly can just turn a hand to anything, um, you know, any song, any genre. She'll just nail it. Um, so that was that was great. And then um, at the same time, similar time, um, she she got this. TV role, this TV show to do, the, the cruising thing for Channel 5. Um, and each, as you know, at the end of each show, they have a song. 
So I did the songs for that. And the songs had to relate to the show, so wherever she was. So if she was in America, it'd be a song about America or whatever. Um, and that was just great fun because we just had a laugh with it, you know. Um, it was just all these covers of all these amazing songs in all different styles, from all different eras, you know, from the 60s to modern day. Um, and, you know, kid in the sweet shop again, just do what you want, you know. <laughs> it's like, fine, brilliant. Um and that was that was great, you know. And then she got she got this show called Jen Friends um, on channel again on Channel Five, um, and that was with three series of that. And I did all the music for that basically. Um, so I think there was a point when I was doing finishing her album, doing the Jen Friends live TV show, and doing the cruising show all at the same time. <laughs> wow! Uh, and it was just it was just mental. I mean, we because we did I think we did about thirty six songs per series for the for the Jen Friends. I think we did about a dozen for each series of the cruising show, and then of course twelve tracks for the album. Um, so it was it was frantic, but it was brilliant, you know. Um, and of course, she's got an amazing band which I've now got to know and work with, um, and some of those are the session guys that I use that we've talked about before. Um, so yeah, good times. It was, it was really good fun. And, uh, yeah, I think the culmination of that was she did a Christmas, uh, arena tour, um, and it was videoed and recorded. Um, so basically all my arrangements, um, and with some of my stems and things all happening, but like, you know, obviously you do this day and day out, Steve, you know all this, um, but with a live band and then I mixed it here and it was printed out on a, on a, a blue, uh, DVD, Blu-ray, and um, I think that's one of my, you know, as a, as a piece of work, I think that's something I'm probably most proud of, because I think, it, I think it, it sounds great, obviously the band are brilliant, she's brilliant, it looks stunning, um, and it, you know, and it's, I, I mixed it basically, so yeah, that was, that, was a, that was a highlight for me, and it was so, so far removed from Seventh Heaven and the dance stuff, um, it was just really nice, just a really nice thing to do, you know. I remember messaging you when I was watching the show because there was a obviously it, it's her versions but there's an you know you're being very respectful and um i thought like i mean for, for starters i don't imagine there's any world where club tropicana would be on the same album as as, as bjork <laughs> but well that that just club, yeah. club tropicana was so well done because it you know there's bits of club you can't have club tropicana without that bass, yeah. some of those elements, you know, I mean, you went quite deep with some of those covers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was, you know, it was interesting. I mean, there was there was a, a little bit of a decent budget compared to, to sort of some of the, the dance labels in the UK. This was Channel 5 TV. I mean, nowhere near the BBC or ITV, but at least there was something. So we could spend a bit more time on stuff and we could get people in to do various things. Um, and and as you say, and just, just really try and try and do our damnless to get things right, you know, and it was great fun. Um, and I think when you're enjoying yourself, you t it tends to bring out the best in you, I think. Um, and it was, it was just, I just really enjoyed it. It was kid in the sweet shop. You know, go going from Club Tropicana to, um, the, the, you know, the Bjork one you mentioned, um, and ABBA, of course, and other things, you know, all over the place, different things. And sometimes you need a, a 70s piano sound, then you need a slap bass, then you need a horn section. And that that's exciting for me. You know, I really enjoy that. And I suppose after the years and years of doing all this, when it comes to something like Winner Takes It All, you you do that thing where you just go, oh, right, okay, well, 
it's this piano with this chorus and you know how to get the sound before you've even looked for it. I guess so. I mean, it's not something I consciously think about, but I suppose just that in-depth that the history of doing these things over the years, like yourself, you, you know, you know where to look, and you, you know where to start, yeah. don't you? And you're not going to start off in the wrong, in the wrong, you know, in the wrong country. You're going to be close, and then you refine it, and and you know, um, yeah. But as like you, I'm sure you, you know, that's the enjoyment. That's fu- having a having a problem to solve musically or production wise, and solving it. Uh, and then, it, then thinking you've done an okay job is is what it's all about. I think really, be it dance, yeah. be it pop, be it whatever. But I think it's also about it just you know being celebrated. I mean, I, I, it's a niche thing, but it, you know, I'm one of the biggest lovers of of liquid gold ever. So, <laughs> and I thought again, you know, I, I didn't think dance stuff Dizzy could be covered, but again, it was done so well because it was just updated enough but kept all the bits in it. And I think if, for someone hearing it for the first time, they'll just think it's a, a Jane song. Do you yes, know what I mean? But, yes, yeah. I mean, was that, was, I'm guessing, was that her idea, your idea? Where did that come from? Uh, well, dance yourself dizzy. Um, so her partner, um, Ed, bless him, rest in peace. Yes. Was was, was of, the original yes, drummer in Liquid Gold. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot, of yeah. course. So that was the connection. Um, very, very sadly, he, he, he died of cancer, um, which was... You know, just literally the world fell apart, um, obviously for Jane. Um, so that was really sad. I, he would come down to the studio. Every time she came, he would come down. Lovely guy, sweetest guy you could you can imagine. And we'd yeah. sit around the kitchen table chatting and having cups of tea. And then we'd come in the studio um, and he'd sit on the sofa behind me and uh, quiet as a mouse. <laughs> and occasionally you get a thumbs up or that sounds good or whatever, you know. Um, but yeah, he was, he was the drummer in Liquid Gold. And that's why she did that song in her set for for years and years and years. Well, listen, if anyone, what, go and look at YouTube for Liquid God Dance Your Dizzy and you'll see, no, I, I mean, he had so much fun on the top of the pop performances. Yes, yes. The drums were always in really weird places. I think he was standing up, wasn't he? At one point, I think he did, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about those top of the pops performances he that was, you remember as a he kid. Was a, you couldn't, you couldn't meet a, a, a sweeter guy. Really, really nice guy. You know, really, really was. Um, yeah, very, very sad. Yeah. Well, listen. I mean, may Jane continue and rule on forever. Because as I yes. say, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I thought the, uh, you know, and actually really complex stuff. You know, the Donna Summer stuff you did. I mean, that is not easy. No, there were, no. I mean, some of the medleys particularly. Um, I, I, we did a sheet medley. We did all sorts of medleys. Um, you know, the, as you say, the, the, they're not straightforward. They need some head scratching. Uh, yeah, <laughs> especially when you've got TV people saying, "Oh, can you make it twenty seconds shorter?" Or, it's like, um, uh, no. <laughs> you know, what? How do you take twenty seconds out of a out of a medley without messing it all up? You know. Well, especially when one of the songs is MacArthur Park. Yes, yes. How do you even... How do you even go? <laughs> you know, you've, you've, 30 seconds, you, the intro hasn't even finished. No, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, But, no, you know, we, we got there. We got there in the end. Oh, no, absolutely, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. no, good. So um, so where do we find you now? You're, are you still... I mean, obviously, you're still... There's a right up to the date with the Sam Ryder mixes and... Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. you've just done a new version of Giving Up, Giving In, haven't you? Uh, yes. Yes, I have. Yes, I'm saying yes with with Mary. Yes, yes, I saw that come up the other day. That's one of my favourite Three Degrees songs ever. Yeah, that that's a good one. Um, yeah, I have. I don't think it's out yet. I just no, saw it. it was, I'm done trying it. To, that was done. It's probably done about oh, six weeks ago, two months ago, maybe. 
Um, yeah. That was a nice one. Because um, for some reason, I, a disco, I tend to sort of gravitate towards as a default kind of safe space, I suppose. <laughs> safe yeah. place. Um, I don't know why, but I, I enjoy disco. Um, I don't like doing too many disco records in a row because I tend to do the same thing in all of them. <laughs> Because yes. um, you know, it's quite a sort of a restricted genre in a way, I suppose. Um, but yeah, that was a really good one. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, so I'm doing that. Um, what I have been doing is doing a bit more production work with independent artists, which is right. quite nice. Um, yes. Uh, sometimes covers, sometimes originals. Um, it's a, it, as you know, it, it's a longer process and it's a more of a kind of collaborative process. But it, it's it's challenging and interesting and inspiring um and it's fresh you know it's, it's really nice um so I'm, I'm enjoying that at the minute um as well as the remix stuff i, I, I always I'll, I'll always do remix work i think uh until i until i drop off this earth but um working with new artists is just more of a challenge i think um and it's, it's interesting because they bring something to the table where if you just get sent parts of a remix You've got nothing. You 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 haven't. You got you've got no one to sort of say. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? If you've got an artist in front of you, you can say, well, what should we do with this record? Where should we take it? How do you hear it? You know. Um, so yeah, uh, that's what I'm doing. I'm also doing a medley of hairspray as well, which is quite interesting. <laughs> that um, is challenging. That is challenging. I say a medley. It's only two songs, but is one of them you can't stop the beat? Yes. Well, then it is challenging. <laughs> <laughs> Baltimore into You Can't Stop the Beat. Okay. Just the six key changes then? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think we tried to put one more in, but it, it felt too much. <laughs> I'm not joking. We did. <laughs> yeah. So that's fun. Um, that's, but, yeah. I mean, that's just such a, I mean, it, gosh, I must have seen that show so many times, but it's just so, just so beautifully written, isn't it? It is. It really is. Uh, and it's, I think it's one of those ones where you can't do an awful lot with it in terms of adding new elements or no. because it is what it is there's no room for there's no wiggle room really um so it starts off clubby but of course once it gets to 160 whatever bpm it is yeah it's too fast you can't go what you can't go for on the floor <laughs> so it, it's a sort of a, a hybrid i suppose um but again you know it's nice to, to sort of mock up horns and things like that and you know and just just challenge yourself and, and try and have fun with it you know I mean, yeah, but but also you say you can't go clubby, but I mean, I think the thing is this idea of club only being four four. I think is wrong. I mean, I think in many ways, in many ways, physical by Dua Lipa is a record that could get played in a club. Well, yes, that's true. Actually, yeah, yeah. I mean, the 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 the, the genres have just been blown apart, haven't they? Really, now and kind of almost yeah. almost anything goes in the club as long as it's yeah. you know, which is which, which is which is great. And actually, yeah. that's goes back to where we started with the nineties in the beginning of what feels like the dark ages now of <laughs> Ibiza where, you know, Paul Oakenfold would play a house record and then an, a soul-to-soul record. Yeah. It's yeah. like, it doesn't have to have a 4-4 kick no. for people to enjoy it. And I mean, there are certain clubs where, yeah, absolutely, you need that. But um, yeah, I think as long as it, it translates and it sounds good and it makes people happy. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's that. That's the most important thing. And I mean, as I said to you before we came on, I mean, you're, there's so many people listening to this that will have had the best nights out of their life listening to things that you made in various rooms. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, just, I mean, of the remixes, and this is impossible question. But I mean, it, <laughs> and you mentioned it with communards because I think I'm, I made you do that because of something of the past. But if someone was to say to you, just 
Give me the best example of your work. What would you say? I don't know. I mean... That you love, that you personally love. doesn't have to be the most successful. Yeah. The one that you could... Because the thing is, we never really go back and listen to what we've done. No. Because we're too busy making something new. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know if you're the same, but I I genuinely don't like listening to my own stuff. Um, I find It's a bit like looking, looking at yourself in the mirror or listening to a recording of your voice. It's kind of cringy. And, yeah. uh, and I can... I can I can just hear it as loads of elements rather than a record. Um, yeah. Occasionally, you know, you stumble across something without realizing, and you think, "Oh, that's me, isn't it?" And and for like five seconds, your brain's thinking, you're listen, listening to it like everybody else listens to it, and then you realize it's you, and you go, "Oh shit, it's me." Um, so yeah, there's the one that sticks out is the 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 um, the girl from ABBA and Gary Barlow. Um, fol- follow you, Agnetha. Fo- uh, follow you home. I think it was called. Yeah. I mean, it, it didn't, you know, it wasn't a particularly sort of massive hit or anything, but um, there was a goosebump moment when when I was sent the vocals and I'm thinking, hang on a minute, <laughs> what are we dealing with here? You know, and it was such a, go- a glorious, gorgeous song. Um, yeah. It's probably not my best remix by any stretch, but I just, it, to me, it's, 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 it's got that musicality um, and it's still clubby um, and... I just think it's it's lovely, you know. Um, so that that would be one of my one of my top five, I suppose. If I if I had to sort of pick, um, I, I I agree with that. That is a really good one, and I think that there's again, it's really hard to explain this in a world where someone can go and just use an AI tool to get an acapella, or just go and find someone new something on YouTube. But there was a point where you couldn't do that, and just hearing a voice that you grew up with your whole life in, in isolated as if bone next dry to you. as if as if yeah as it literally a few feet away from you it, it's it's magical isn't it it is it really is it really is and you you know you have to pinch yourself sometimes thinking you know i've been honored to to be working on this you know incredible yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, may, may it continue. I'm sure it will. And I genuinely mean that. You know, because you've done various things for me. And it's always, I, you know, you're one of the safest pairs of hands that I know. And <laughs> just you, to you. be able to. And, and weirdly, even in the last hour and a half, you know, we've got more in common than I even thought that we had with various... <laughs> Bits of technology yes, and uh, yes. and 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 starting points and stuff. So uh, so yeah, may it continue. Can't wait to hear what's coming up next. Thank you, uh, Steve. Appreciate that. Thanks for, for and also yeah. Thank. I was so happy you could come and see the step show where we you graciously let us use some of your bits and pieces. No, that was fantastic. And you yeah. could see a, a a full O2 arena. Yes. Yes. Go nuts. Well, <laughs> I, I have to say, a slightest touch is probably in my top five as well as sort of yeah, crowded so moments. Yeah, so it should be. Yeah, yeah. So it should be. Yeah, it was incredible. Amazing. All right, John, thanks very much for uh, chatting to me today. Thank you very much, Steve. And uh, take care of yourself. Appreciate that. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Bye.